This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of December 19, 2016, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 411 of Defender Radio. If you see a dog sit down in pants, are they smiling or showing anxiety? If they roll on their back, is it submissive or are they simply asking for a belly rub? And what possibly do these questions have to do with how we communicate messages of greater social change? A conversation on dog behavior and our perception of it, namely focused on the upsetting incident of a polar bear killing a dog, around the same time a video of a polar bear touching a dog at the same location went viral, was the original purpose of this week's Defender Radio episode. A discussion of critical thinking, dog behavior, and perception is, of course, where we started. But in talking with Joan Weston, a dog behaviorist, owner of Canine Shrink, and an animal behavior and ethics instructor at Durham College, a bigger picture started to form. Could the way we perceive behavior in dogs, and how we start to understand what our canine companions really need, help us foster compassionate change in other arenas? Could the experiences of learning how to exercise empathy in dealing with non-human animal issues show us clues into having better conversations on policy and social reform? In this last Defender Radio episode of 2016, you'll find out just how much we can learn from our canine friends and how Joan Weston helped us ask the right questions that may just lead to a better 2017. To get started, when, when I talk about dog stuff... Um, and when I talk with a dog expert, I find it's good to sort of set out the the level of expertise. What makes you an expert? Because while I don't do this with most other science, with dogs, there's this sort of degree of um, self-expertise, I, I guess we could say. So how, how do we classify you as an expert? What's your, your area of uh, uh, expertise? I think the difference, and there's a great quote by an author named Charles Pierce, who says, uh, "In the time when, of, you know, in the time that we are now, where everybody's an expert, the worst thing that you can possibly be is an actual expert." So I think it's a great quote. Um, <laughs> what I would say makes somebody an expert is the combination of both uh, academic and hands-on experience. And so that's sort of what I, I try to bring to the table and I continue to work on as well. So um, I certainly have the, the academic background in, um, in uh, uh, psychology work, uh, graduate work in sports psychology as well before I transferred that to animal behavior, um, finishing off a master's as well. Uh, but also that hands-on, you know, more than a couple of decades, I sound old, couple of decades in the field um you started when you were 10 right exactly yeah. yeah i was very precocious as a youngster so yeah i think i wrote my first article at six i'm sure yeah. so um but yeah so i think the idea of being an expert is both one of continuing to learn uh, continuing to study as well as journal reviews and and being up to date on the current science not just sort of resting on what you read in the textbook to, 10 years ago. So I think the combination of both the academics, the hands-on, and the continuing development is what I would say would qualify me more as a, a canine behavioral expert, perhaps, than, than some of the self-proclaimed. 
I guess I, I'm just trying to think. This this is such a broad subject, and while we have some specific things we're going to talk about, um, I think what might be valuable is to establish how we observe or measure canine behavior, because and, and we'll get into sort of how this applies in all these different circumstances, but um, that may be sort of the the crux of the whole thing. Is can we identify and measure and what how do we do that well i mean i think you're touching on something that we could we could go on for you know many many hours i'm sure that we would be fascinated i'm not entirely sure how much the listeners would be by our our hourly hours of discussion but i think the concept that you're touching on which i think is really important is one of perception and and i say that in my seminars as well that we need to remember that the perception, the point of view that matters is not ours, but the dog's. And so when we talk about behavior, I think your point is incredibly well taken or certainly very insightful of what is behavior. So we say that behavior, you know, technically, behavior is any uh, action uh, or response by to be all science geeky. Um, For dog behavior, I think it's any action, again, same thing that they do, but you're really getting into a big area of the perception of the dog walks forward. To one trainer, the dog is being aggressive. To another trainer, the dog is being social. To another trainer, the dog is disinterested. So I, I think that that's a really interesting aspect of what is behavior. So when I look at canine behavior myself, most of our clients... I'm looking at both what we call sort of classical and operant conditioning, but things that the dog does either voluntarily or involuntarily. Um, And perhaps it's an action that we don't want. So how do I change that or modify that in my practice? And that's, again, that's to me is a very interesting situation. I remember reading um, about a, uh, uh, who was it? It He set out, what must have been pages of, this is what I perceive to be this behavior. Like there, there were, he created the conditions for behavior so that he wasn't just saying this is the behavior. Um, and I found that was a very interesting take on it because as you said, to each person, the perception of that behavior could be different. Um, and then when you're trying to then evaluate large numbers of dogs uh, responding to certain stimuli or in certain environments, um, you know, you all of a sudden get these vastly different interpretations. Um, so being able to define it in some way, whatever way that may be, is going to be beneficial, I think. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I and my, my very quick interjections, I agree. We had a, a recent conversation and there were some some people who were sort of lamenting the idea of why why use these fancy science terms? You know, why why can't we just speak in English? Why do we have to get into this? And I think it's exactly what you just outlined what they said. It, it's not that we want to say them all just to look smart at cocktail parties, although that is a, it's a great benefit <laughs> when you're trying to impress somebody. But it's more about exactly what you just outlined, which is uniformity, so that at least we know we're all talking more or less about the same thing. Yeah, and that's uh, and that's maybe the, the nice lead into the next, next segment of this before, again, we get into those specific instances, but um, how we react to what we see and this is this is sort of going to rely on some of that human psychology but um you know talking and and i guess it's probably something that comes up frequently with what you you do daily um 
is when we see a dog react a certain way, how much of anthropomorphism kicks into that? Now, for you, it's obviously going, you're going to try and detach yourself from it. I think any good trainer or behaviorist will. But for, you know, a dog owner like myself or for someone watching videos on Facebook or, or whatever the situation may be, how much of what we're seeing is, is actually maybe an anthropomorphic perception of what we're seeing? And again, I think I, I, I don't think that that's answerable. Uh, I think because again, it's some one of those that's ever changing. Um, absolutely, anthropomorphism is going to play a role in any evaluation uh, of any sort of animal behavior at all. Simply because our own perspective will inevitably influence uh, what we think, what our opinion of a situation. That everything we do truly is based on, to some measure, of our own experience. I think that the bigger, one of the big issues, in, along with the anthropomorphizing idea, in other words, sort of just giving them the human characteristics and emotions, is also that confirmation bias. And so we say the same thing. When we start to perceive a dog as having a certain sort of a temperament or a characteristic, um, then the risk is that we start to look at all these other behaviors as a part of that, as a function of that, in order to confirm our diagnosis in the first place. And so when we get into anthropomorphizing, you know, that's a very useful construct in a lot of ways. You know, we need to be careful because it sometimes gets vilified as we shouldn't do that to dogs and yes, or animals. Of course, they don't necessarily have that same range of abstract thought. We know that they don't, certainly in dogs' cases, they don't have the development of the frontal cortex that humans do to that degree. But they have evolved so closely with us. So much of their social signaling, much of their, their uh, social behavior can in some part uh, be explained a little bit along similar lines. So it's hard. The anthropomorphizing idea is a double-edged sword. There are times that it really serves us when we try to encourage people in the areas of things like compassion or being able to take another's point of view. Um, but there are times, again, certainly, where we get into what we call sort of the disnification of dogs, and then it doesn't serve us. So it's very much a double-edged sword and very much plays a part. Yeah, and, you know, I was actually just talking about that with a colleague this morning. There's a study out um, uh, just last week. It doesn't have to do with dogs, and this is a giant uh, leap away from what we're talking about, but it still plays in, and I want to talk about it anyway, um, is... Uh, it's a study called Effects of Recreation on Animals Revealed as Widespread Through a Global Systemic Review. And what the authors found, it's on PLOS One, um, is that pretty much anytime people go into a conservation area, we are going to influence primarily in a negative way some aspect of wildlife. Um, and this, they, they looked at 274 articles on non-consumptive recreation. That's the important part. Um, and uh, I, and it's very interesting. And it calls into question all kinds of enjoyable topics to me uh, that I'm going to look into in the future. But what it really struck me was, and, and it kind of hits what you just said, is we need people to be closer to nature, to be closer to animals, so they can see that there is this intrinsic value in them. See that, you know, in the case of a dog, that this this is an animal with with sentience that, that is capable of feeling, that has a range of emotions and learning ability. Um, but 
we also then need to sort of remind them that we have to be somewhat clinical about it in that we can very negatively influence it by getting too close to it. So it's finding this line of, and and it's kind of what you said, identifying that we need to be able to apply some level of anthropomorphism because it's, it's how we understand the world around us um, is our own experience. But at the same time, not allow that to too severely impact what is actually happening with, you know, in this case, dogs. Um, now, is that something that you, you struggle with is as a behaviorist, when you go into to someone's home or, you're, or even, I guess, in, in a lecture hall, um, when you're explaining, like, yes, a dog can feel happy, but it's not necessarily the same happy you feel. I think we do address it, um, and I think, again, you know, certainly maybe not as depth as a philosophical um, construct, but absolutely, you know, I can think of even just about uh, a week ago, you know, with any practice, where on my, my intake form, when I go to do a consult, is about almost 18 pages, and certainly it's in somewhat onerous, and, you know, we do sometimes get that odd person, you know, again, I can't possibly do all this, but, but part of that rationale is that understanding the history uh, is critical for me to go in and do behavior, and it was interesting, some of the descriptions on the form, and, and I just saw um, a client uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they have three smaller dogs, and all rescues, and the little ones are a little bit reactive. So reactive meaning that they they bark. They'll bark on the leash at things if they see things, and they get excited. But the owner's description of them, quite lovingly, was that they were being you know, sort of little turds, so to speak. Um, and again, you know, sort of this loving manner. But it kept coming up. We said, see, when when the other dog came over, she was a turd. She behaved this way. So Again, when you get into that anthropomorphizing, when you try to reframe it to them, to say she's not, she's not choosing to be a turd, as one would say in clinical terms, um, yeah, she's afraid. And I think that, that is, that's where the anthropomorphizing can be useful, because it's an emotion that people can connect with. Um, we often describe them uh, very much as sort of special needs. Uh, and again, as much as the owner will laugh, it's a way for them to connect. But where that gets difficult is they're animals. They are still animals. And so there are aspects of their behavior because they're a different species that are different than us. Um, you know, just like the, the men are from Mars and the women are from Venus. You know, we all sort of suffer that, 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 uh, that break off. So um, that's where it gets difficult. You know, you have an animal. We've had a client with a, a dog uh, who was highly predatory who killed uh, their pet, their cat. Yeah. Again, how do you reconcile? It's not a bad dog. The dog, you know, it's it certainly social, it's affectionate, it's not a bad dog. But it flipped into they are still animals. And then that's where the break comes. When the anthropomorphizing, when the equation doesn't fit our behavior, what's natural for us, that's where I think we get some break. Well, and I think that's that's the perfect segue into one of the big the biggest videos regarding dogs and wildlife I can think of in in the last several years. Um, it was this polar bear petting a dog video that went absolutely viral. And for those who aren't familiar with it, it, it was a video that uh, purported to show a polar bear literally petting a dog. Um, 
the day that or the weekend that video went viral, the Friday, a polar bear killed one of the dogs. Um, and the whole story was that this guy has his dogs. He, he claims he runs a rescue, um, but he has the dogs all chained up outdoors and invites the polar bears close to his home by feeding them directly and then charges tourists to come be close to polar bears. Um, so he literally drew in polar bears to a chained dog. And in one instance, the polar bear, quote unquote, petted the dog. And ultimately what happened is he had not fed the polar bears one night and the polar bears ate a dog. Um, or at the very least killed the dog. I'm not sure if it was consumed. Um, but this one, I mean, the second I saw that video, I start like the, the, the red flags, my brain started going up. Something doesn't seem right. This is not what we're being told at this. Um, in your position with your expertise, with what you do, how, how, how problematic is it that so many people can look at that video of the largest land mammal in our country, which is a predator, petting or tapping a dog. Again, petting is, is anthropomorphizing in itself. Exactly. Um, because even that expression, even how was that titled? Uh, you know, we get into the, the phrasing, as you well know, uh, certainly you're the media expert, not me, but you certainly know that. I can rephrase a title for a story four different ways if I want to present it as liberal, as a far right, as a centrist. And that's the same idea, the use of words. Um, if that had said, uh, you know, polar bear assault or, you know, again, approaching, right, not sure, that's not quite as friendly as petting. And the word petting, again, for us very much, and that's very much an anthropomorphic, a sign of affection. And if you, it's interesting about that as well, that's very much a human construct, that idea of sort of petting or, or sort of stroking an animal using your hand, or I would say that, but we certainly don't see that. Dogs don't generally sit there and pet each other. Even if they like each other, they don't sit there and pat each other on the head. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting divide. And the problem, again, we get back into, I do think some of that unfortunate, you know, and like I say, I do think it's a double-edged sword. I don't think it's black and white. But when you get back into that disnification, the idea of these, you know, the jungle book, the animals that form a bond um, with a person, you know, certainly we've seen, or you may have seen as well, the video of... Um, the, there was a lion who was assisted, I think two men, or they raised him, but the lion was released back to a sanctuary. And there's a video that purports to show this man visiting the lion years later. And the lion runs to him and hugs him and puts his feet on them, and it's all, you know, all it's missing is, is a soundtrack. So, um, but again, that's not the real world, and that certainly isn't safe. And, you know, to your own, to your own uh, example, I would also suggest as well even the the iconic born free as we all know or many of us will know um you know the uh, the subject of that uh, of that film uh, she was actually killed by one of the lions eventually so it, it's very difficult when we really want to romanticize we want to create this this idea of feelings and and certainly morality is a very big one that starts to come into it and values and that's the area where the dogs and certainly many animals split off, is that term of sort of values or sharing our values or our morals. Well, and is this indicative of a lack of critical thinking? Um, you know, one of my big things is media literacy these days. Um, 
And with, with what's happened in the United States in the last year, I think it's more important than ever. Um, but part of that is that concept of critical thinking, of, of sort of like a healthy skepticism, or even simply just questioning something. Um, is that maybe part of the problem, both with the, the polar bear, quote-unquote, petting a dog, through to someone, you know, handling their dog incorrectly because they perceive an issue to be one of... Uh, personality as opposed to function. I, I think it is, and unfortunately, that's that's an issue that's never going to go away, um, because the reality is there's always going to be reporters or media writing on topics that they are not experts on, and what's very difficult, certainly in our field, and if you look at the canine behavior, as you know, one of the most polarizing figures is the dog whisperer, is a television show that's featured on the uh, uh, Animal Planet and National Geographic, it used to be, my understanding is. But um, again, the problem is, and it's very difficult, is you're not dealing with an educated public. And so to say, you know, yes, there should be more critical thinking, I agree. But what's hard is that you can find certainly no shortage of articles written by exactly what we started our conversation with, is the pseudo-experts. So and that's somebody, like I say, we go back to that the dog whisperer sort of thing. Um, he's very charismatic. He's got very good media savvy, very media presence. So never mind that much of the material that comes out of his mouth is factually incorrect. And we have studies in science to show that most of the techniques are harmful. It's difficult because the public, to their critical thinking, even if they research, and I have clients who have done those sort of techniques, and it's difficult because they've tried. You know, again, we do, we certainly, sometimes as humans as well, we get judgmental where we want to vilify people for using these sort of harsh techniques, but the reality is they tried, and they, they looked for information out there, and that appeared to be credible. So the difficulty is, how, is not just critical thinking, is really trying to evaluate and looking at the sources. Well, and I guess... Ultimately, one of the other problems is that it's not always wrong. Um, and particularly, if, if we use the dog whisper example, which I think really is a an excellent one, because it, it surprises me to this day when I meet people who who espouse his theories. Um, and, and I don't use theories in the scientific term. I use theories as in like Ronald McDonald and the Hamburglar are conspiring against the Burger King theories. Um, it is that they... They see it work. So on television, of course, uh, the magic of, of editing, um, which is why I always sound coherent when I do my introductions on this radio show, um, they see, oh, well, the dog was doing this wrong. And he came in and a week later he came back and look, the dog's better. Um, you know, it doesn't go into the what happened next. But also, even with some of the simple behaviors, for instance, um, and I know you're probably angry at me for saying simple behaviors, but for some of the, the less, uh, some of the less significant problems that may arise in dog training, some of those practices will give you results. Um, again, that's where, you know, you get into that whole, what is the actual results? And that's a, a different conversation in itself. But I guess that's like, it's not always wrong, is, is the point. Um, I think you're touching on a few areas. Um, number one, and when I teach my students at Durham College, when we teach the, the animal behavior course, one of the discussions we have is one called efficacy. 
methods, certain methods will work. That's not the issue. Just because a method is efficient or works, we also have second evaluation, which is, is that still valid? And so when we see the methods, what we call suppression, um, and that's what you see when we watch shows like The Dog Whisperer or At the End of My Leash, what they tend to focus on is called positive punishment, which means they add something that the dog doesn't want. So a positive punishment, it could be yelling, it could be that little that you see, um, it could be the kick where he comes in under the kidneys. He certainly does use pain and collar correction. The, what the owners see eventually, if that's done enough, or I would say, I guess, properly in order to modify, is what you see is called behavioral shutdown or suppression. And so that's a very different thing than what we call the phrase that I like to use is called buoyant compliance. So in other words, I want my dogs to behave most of the time, if I'm lucky, but I don't necessarily want to lose that personality. Um, I don't need it to be in a fear-based relationship. And so when you talk about that, again, what they see that they will say to me, well, that works. The dog was lunging and now he's not lunging. And what will happen when you use suppression, the problem is, is that you're never changing the dog's perception. All you're doing is using a bigger threat of violence to try and quash behavior. And I say the same thing to the client. You know, you need to understand hitting a child will work. It's not a question of whether or not it will work. It does work. If, you, if your child is doing something that you don't want them to do, if you hit them hard enough, if you act severely enough, they will stop the behavior and they won't do the behavior again. So then why don't we hit kids? Why are we trying to move away from this idea of using a belt or a strap? Then why isn't that accepted? Because now we understand the bigger picture and we start to recognize what we call fallout or the risk of using that method. And that's exactly what you see with dogs. So it's not necessarily about efficacious because the dog can't speak up. You can punish the animal, but again, in, in a moral realm, as well as a behavioral one. I think there's a bigger picture than just does it work. Now, how do you explain that to the masses? I like to me, it's it seems clear. And when you, you stack the evidence up um, and, uh, you know, I've spoken with, with other behaviorists on similar subjects and they say the evidence is there. The question always seems to get stuck on. And this this is in relation to specifically uh, the use of positive punishment in training, such as the dog whisperer, through to getting people to to read a full article rather than just look at a headline in a picture and make an assumption. How do we get across the point that, you know, there, there, you, you need to have a bigger picture. You need to have critical thinking skills. You need to look to the next page. Um how do we do that both in regards to, you know, to teaching people about dog behavior through to looking at these, these viral videos of animals as a whole and what else is happening behind the scenes? Well, I think that's where you're going to cycle back. Um, I think you're going to cycle back to a few things. We're going to come back there. Let's go back to your anthropomorphizing that we spoke about first. One of the ways, and this is true in society as well, certainly with divides in that, when we talk about even, again, something as big as racism or anything else, right down to dog training. How do I connect people? 
end of the aisle. And one of the things that we find, it's the same thing in psychology, is what do we share? What do we have in common? And that's when with dogs, when we start to come back to the using anthropomorphizing to, in a beneficial way, in a helpful way, that can help an owner to begin to connect with the dog where I can present them a shared emotion. And I often use the child example with them very often because my clients, not all the time, but sometimes they'll have kids or nieces or nephews. And so that really relates to their personal experience. That niece or nephew has acted out. And there have been times, absolutely, where you want to sell the little child to the circus and be done with them, and you can't. And we don't do that. I mean, I don't think they get a good price anymore. I think there's just too many willing to go. But, um, but that idea of when we can connect, when we can sort of find some type of a common ground that we can identify with, uh, that also fosters the relationship. And then it opens us up more to learning and understanding. Um, I do think as well when we also get into the psychology aspect, and this is one of the areas that I think trainers or behaviorists or any field, I really think that they do need to understand the importance of a sort of counseling psychology vis-a-vis human, not just dog, because I, that the owner is the, gate, the gatekeeper to the dog. And you, can't, you have to be cautious about going in with a sort of holier-than-now attitude. And I've certainly had clients where they've had a trainer come over and they were, based, they were berated for much of the time and told everything they were doing wrong. Um, I do have to be able to work with what I have so that if I have an owner, in certain cases, they may have a mindset that they want to have more control or they want that sort of a, a relationship then what can I do to help them and that dog to foster the best relationship within a different environment necessarily than you or I might have? Now, one of the things that I often think about and I talk about, and I I very rarely write about it because I find it very difficult to write about it, so I'm going to put you on the spot with it since I can't communicate about it. Great. No problem um, is the, uh, the gray area. Um, now when we're talking about behavior, we're talking about some of these sciences, it's, it's very, this is what the evidence shows. Um, but when we then talk about application or we talk about interpretation, um, again, you know, um, I think an example, if we try and sort of stick to a theme is you see videos of people dressing up their dogs. Um, you know, we do that for our pleasure, not for theirs. Um, some dogs mind it, some dogs don't. But there's a gray area there where it's not right or wrong. You know, it's not a black and white issue. There's all of these variables to consider. Uh, You know, with my dogs, uh, whom you have met, uh, JJ, the hound mix, um, if you put stuff on her, she's just going to try and get it off. She doesn't want it. She's a very, uh, I, I, I call her a simple dog in that she does not want a lot more than to simply be comfortable Um, so if you do something that makes her uncomfortable, she's going to avoid it. She's going to dismiss it. She's going to get away from it. And then there's another dog, Baloo, the lab, who has been taught and enjoys learning. So he knows if I do this, I might get a treat. So even if it's a little uncomfortable for him, he's not going to mind because the reward to him is worth it. The same way that, you know, I smile for a family photo, uh, even if I'm not feeling happy. 
so how do we describe this gray area that exists in not necessarily evidence, but in the the ethical application of that evidence, be it, you know, with our individual dogs up to looking for societal change? Again, I think we cycle this back. Let's go back where we were in the beginning. And I think that one big word is the word perception. And another sort of a phrase that I use that I would you know, often use with a client that sometimes sums up is exactly what you said is it is not my perception that matters. It's the dogs or the animals or whatever that is. And so that's where it's hard. Exactly what you said, where, you know, certainly Lou may or may not like having clothing, but he may enjoy the work. He may simply enjoy the idea of training, right? So for him, that opportunity to engage, to do things is inherently rewarding. Yes, he certainly gets food. Um, and the food is absolutely a part of it. Um, you know, for JJ, she's just clearly above you and you're an yeah. idiot and you've lost your mind for the moment. So she's just going to help fix that by <laughs> taking the clothing off and letting you think about what you've done. Um, but again, that perception, you know, this is very much a philosophical discussion. And one of the big areas that I see this, I will say, even where you talk, use that example of the costumes and that sort of thing, and I agree, um, is even, and I just had uh, twice on the weekend with dogs, um, the idea of dogs who may be fearful or a little bit worried about strangers or guests who come in the home um, as the idea of putting the dog away. And it's a really interesting concept because many dog people, I should, and I hate to use that phrase, but people have had multiple dogs for years who get accustomed to what we call management, where they use the crate or baby gates and the dogs are not always out together. And so to those people who are accustomed to that, that becomes very much second nature. When we have people over at our house for dinner, um, our dogs are generally crated almost for the whole evening. So we'll bring them out here and there. But it's too difficult. It's too stressful. For many owners, just giving them that permission to say, leave your dog upstairs. They don't have to be part of everything. And it's one of the most difficult things because it's the owner's perception of, I don't want her to feel like she's being punished when people come over or she's going to be sad, or she's isolated. How come she has to go away and the other dog can be out? That doesn't seem fair. And so what happens is we start to, in that area, we get back into perception, right? What is our perception? You may think this is a lot of fun. When the dog is out, the dog isn't enjoying herself. You're not enjoying yourself because everybody is anxious. And then once you put the dog away, and my client this weekend was very... I had a lot of fun with them, but it was a bulldog, and that's the breed that I have. And the joke about, you know, the bulldogs is they're the perfect, you know, working dog because it takes them uh, four hours to notice you're gone and another four to care. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're not particularly active. If you can give them a sunspot and a couch, they're pretty much set. And so that same conversation that we had with them with strangers in the home, the dog would get very anxious. And where I said to the owners, just put her up in the bedroom, which they've been doing. And he said, we've done that, and she's fine. She'll sleep on the bed. Uh, so what's the problem? Then uh, I'll take my check and go. But it wasn't quite that easy. But it was the idea for the owners to get used to that idea of, you know, it's not our perception. It's theirs. And as a sort of, I use the phrase as a dog parent or a pet parent, your role as a parent 
is not to simply try and imbue your values with your dog. It is more to ensure their safety and to respect their values and set them up in a situation where they can make the right choice. Yeah, and you know, and that's my personal experience with JJ. When it's her and I, it's a very lovely relationship. Um, but when other people, other dogs start coming around, she gets, uh, as you know, very anxious. Um, and there are times when, for example, we've had friends over in the summer for a barbecue in the backyard. Um, and a couple of dogs are out there playing. JJ will lay by the door and wait to go inside and go into her crate because that's she's comfortable there. She doesn't have to stress about anything. She doesn't have to keep an eye on everything. She's not watching the sky for thunder. She's not making sure the other dogs are bothering me. She's not keeping an eye on the strangers who are in the backyard. She can just relax. And I guess that's, I, I guess when we sort of look at that in the 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 macro version, um, is sort of that concept of meeting people where they're at too. If we're not looking at just pets uh, or wildlife, but people, when we're looking at societal change, um, it's very clear to me why we shouldn't use fur. But to some people who were brought up around it, it's very clear why we should. And me simply saying, here's the evidence that shows you're wrong, isn't enough. Uh, there is this, there's, there's this massive perception and culture behind the whole thing. Um, and... I guess it's, for me, it can be frustrating because I, I try and live very much based on what I see, what I learn through, you know, through, through literal evidence as I'm sitting and looking at studies through to watching how the world works and speaking with people like yourself who are an expert in fields. Um, but when we're trying to address that, and I just want to say, well, you need more critical thinking skills. Almost as important as those critical thinking skills is that compassion or empathy, um, and that's recognizing both the positive benefits that the other person or animal may have and the limitations they may have through experience or, or biology. And I think, and if you go to further to your point again, one of the most difficult ones for us is the idea of values, is being able to step back and say, if my, what my values are may not be your values, does that necessarily make your behavior wrong or right? I think that's where it becomes very difficult. So, you know, obviously, exactly when you get in, when you get into sort of what we spoke about, even like the idea of fur or hunting, is that a double-edged sword? Absolutely. Uh, you know, would, you know, again, the extent of my hunting experience or my desire of hunting is going to be in New York, trying to find a really good Chinese place as opposed to the so-so ones for dinner, um, that's all the hunting I'm going to do. I'm, you know, but again, but for others where it does it become okay if it's a life, it's a, if it's a survival technique, if it's a lifestyle, I don't know, and I don't think that these are easy areas, but I think the value system is where it gets very difficult. Um and I, you know, even on a human level, I will say one of my, my really big heroes or my idols is, is, is a woman named Jane Elliott. And Jane Elliott is very quite famous for, as some of you may be familiar, listeners may be familiar with, the idea she did the classroom work with racism in the late 60s. And then she still did uh, workshops even up till just recently. And the idea of exposing people to what it was like with racism, though they hadn't experienced it. So in her setup, she did a sort of a brown eyes, blue eyes. And so 
the children were separated according to eye color. And on one day, the blue eyes had to wait uh, to go out for lunch until after the, the brown eyes went. And the blue eyes weren't as smart in the whole thing. But what was fascinating about it is you really saw the perceptions begin to shift among the kids, even within a day or two. And the reason I think that's so interesting for me, I think one of the underpinnings of everything you're talking about, empathy is very, very difficult. It's really hard as much as we want to say, yeah, we have compassion. It is very hard to look at somebody who's being a pain in the tush to you and step back to say, you know what, maybe there's something else going on. And yes, we all see the adorable Facebook memes that say be kind and people have things happening and we say, oh yes, I always do that. But we don't. We don't. That's simply the reality that somebody snaps at us in a store and our first response is, to come back with a name calling or, you know, what a jerk rather than taking that step to go, wait, you know, maybe this has nothing to do with me. And we go back to the animals with the dogs. It's that same thing. And one of the things we emphasize with the dog owners, those, that dog who is barking on the leash, that little dog who's acting aggressively to a stranger isn't giving you a hard time. They don't choose aggression because they want to, they are struggling themselves they're having a hard time themselves at that moment. And that often leads to that same idea of this guilt or the remorse afterwards. So I think it's a, it's a interest, it's an interesting issue. To get in touch with Joan, visit her website at canineshrink.ca or follow the links on this week's Defender Radio blog. That's all for this week and this year. It hasn't always been easy, but we made it, helping each other and the animals along the way. On behalf of all of us at the Fur Bears, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and Happy New Year. Until 2017, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.